Well, I was just thinking um, over some of the, the subjects that we've covered so far uh, in systematic theology, and we, we've looked at quite a bit uh, already, uh, talking about Christology. Uh, we've looked at Jesus' uh, incarnation. Uh, we've talked about the differences between his humanity, his deity. We've talked about the hypostatic union of Christ. Uh, these are all very, very important subjects for your theology is so that you understand who Christ is and what he has done. Now, <clears throat> we haven't talked a whole lot about uh, the redemption uh, of Christ, but we will. That's coming up next uh, as we study the doctrine of salvation. But Christology is just so absolutely important uh, because everybody today has an opinion of who is Christ, what has he done, uh, you know, what does the Bible really teach about who Christ is, and, and uh, you know, popular opinion has all sorts of erroneous ideas of who Jesus is. Um, I just think about the rise of Islam and how important that is for us to know that, um, you know, that, that the whole Muslim world uh, sees Christ as nothing more than a prophet. Uh, he is not the Son of God. He did not die on the cross. Um, he is not God incarnate. A total denial of who Jesus Christ is according to Scripture. And so you can see some of the reasons why Christology uh, is so important. You know what I mean? To know, to have a proper understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, it just, um, the humanity of Christ is also uh, something that we looked at very closely. And we looked at uh, everything that he did as a man um, and how he uh, accomplished redemption for us as a man, how he was. Uh, tempted in all points without sin. We talked about the importance of his humanity, um, the fact that he was uh, sinless uh, is also very important, and it has to do with his atoning work, his sacrifice, that he was a sinless uh, sacrifice, a sinless offering, the spotless Lamb of God, and so we, we talked about the atonement. We looked at all these different things and everything. Isn't it amazing how much, is, how much there is to talk about when it, talks, when it, when it comes to Christology? And there's so many doctrines attached to the person and work of Christ. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to be looking at this topic. We looked at the resurrection uh, last week, We talked, or last time we, we were together. We had talked about the resurrection, and today I want to talk about the ascension. The ascension of Christ. Another also very important. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1, if you would. <clears throat> the ascension of Christ. Uh, also very important, and also, uh, remarkably, as you study more of this, come to find out that there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of practical implications for your life and mine, for the believer in particular, that is connected to the whole doctrine, the whole concept of the ascension, and we'll see this moving on, moving forward, okay? Uh, I'm thinking of Acts chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse... Nine there, you see it, if yours are, if your Bible is entitled like mine, it says the Ascension, okay? Uh, it says, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said to the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has, who has been taken up from you into heaven, 
will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's a remarkable statement by these two, uh, it says these two men with white clothing, which we know uh, from reading our Gospels that that's a description of the angels. The two angels appeared at this point testifying to the disciples about what the ascension meant. And so glorious because, uh, you know, Jesus is leaving them. And Jesus says in uh, John 17, it is good for you that I go away. (laughs) And, and, you know, as a disciple, you would think, that's not good. (laughs) We want you to stay here, right? You have the words of eternal life. Where shall we go? Where can we go? Apart from you, we don't want to be apart from you, right? But Jesus uh, Robert, thank you. Sorry about that. Jesus rebukes us for our unbelief at that point because he sends us his spirit uh, to be with us so that we wouldn't be left as orphans. He gives us his spirit as a deposit, right, uh, to be with us and to empower us, his empowering presence after his ascension. But notice, notice what the text says right here. It says that Jesus was taken up into heaven. So the ascension of Christ means that Jesus actually goes to a, a uh, he actually goes to a literal place. Uh, he doesn't just go into an ethereal existence of some sort, floating around in the clouds, right, in some dimension unknown. But heaven is a place. It is a real place. It is a real realm. And he went into heaven. It says Elijah took, was taken up into heaven. And so this is very interesting language now attributed to Christ. Of course, he went into heaven, and when he went to heaven, what happened as Jesus went to heaven? What was the purpose for Jesus to go into heaven? Let me ask you all that reason. What happened when Jesus went to heaven? Any, any thoughts? He went to the right hand of the Father, but he has to go to heaven to be able to come back to redeem his church. That's right. Okay, yeah, so he goes to the right hand of the Father. Anybody else? He sits down. He sits down at the right hand of the Father. You're making a little qualification there. Okay, why is that important? You emphasize that he sat down. Because his work as the uh, sympathetic faithful high priest is done. So it's finished. The work is completed. Okay, so sitting down is, a, is, a, is a, an indication that his redemptive work is completed. That's good. Anybody? Holy Spirit? What's that? The Holy Spirit can Okay, so now the Holy Spirit can come, or maybe even more uh, related to Christ, Jesus can send the Holy Spirit now, right? He can pour out the Holy Spirit now that he has ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And so that's right. Um, he, he has entered what theologians call, this is kind of an old word now, we don't really use it anymore in this way, his heavenly session which speaks of the fact that he takes his seat, right, in heaven. And so when, when you know, I, you bring up, you know, the fact, the Hebrews idea that he sat down at the right hand, it's interesting because that's why theologians refer to that as the heavenly session where Jesus literally is the, referring to the act of sitting down. That's what this old Latin, you know, this old English word meant back then. We don't use it like that anymore. You know what I mean? You are now in your, your Sunday school session. <laughs> or you're sitting down in Sunday school, right? So Jesus is now in his heavenly session, right? 
And he, let me read to you uh, Psalm, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Now you guys, we've been in Hebrews, we've looked at this, you can't look at it too often. But uh, I'll read to you from Psalm, you're going to Hebrews 1, but I'll read to you from Psalm 110 that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so there is a messianic passage where God the Father apparently talking to God the Son and promising him his vindication, promising him that in his exaltation, all of his enemies would be put under his feet. Um, And his exaltation, his heavenly session, also has a redemptive purpose, if you would. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's amazing language there. The majesty on high. That is another way of referring to the power of God, um, to the, the glory of God, the magnificence of God, the grandeur of God. And then to sit down at his right hand means that you're in a place of equal authority with uh, the majesty on high. And so this is a, a re- you know, obviously a really good deity uh, passage. And when he sat down, we are told all his enemies were defeated or would be put under his feet. God is working out all of his purposes and in this age right now, putting all God's enemies under his feet. And uh, we're seeing that even now. Now, now I want you to turn to Ephesians with me, Ephesians chapter 1. Because in Ephesians 1, another purpose of the, of the ascension and the exaltation is so that Jesus Christ might be manifest to possess all authority. All authority. Now, this is interesting. I want to correlate Ephesians 1 with another passage in a second out of Peter. But uh, Ephesians 1, uh, beginning in verse 20. Somebody want to read that? Somebody read uh, verses 20 to 22. Somebody want to read that? Patrick, are you there? Ephesians 1, verse 20 to 22. 20 to 22? Yes, sir. Yeah. Go for it. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. So, I mean, here Jesus is really put in a position of incredible authority where it says that he is, obviously we know already it says that he was seated at the right hand, uh, uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then it says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, I've always interpreted that as saying that means that Jesus has been exalted above all demonic and angelic hosts, all demonic and angelic beings, right? And then... I find this passage out of, out of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Um, I could just read it to you, or you could go there, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 makes it explicit um, what I've been saying this whole time. <laughs> no, I just, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't realized uh, this verse. It's a parallel, but it uses the language of angels explicitly. It says, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, 
after angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Isn't that amazing? And so this is why Hebrews goes on to say, let all the angels of God worship him, right? Because he's been exalted to such a, such a high place above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Uh, that means that Jesus is in a place of total authority above all the demonic powers that were, that were basically against him at the cross. Think about that. At the cross, Jesus says, this is the hour uh, and, and, the, and your power of darkness right before he went to the cross. Very interesting language. In other words, what I take that to mean is that what Jesus was saying is, is this is the oh, this is the brief little moment in which the powers of darkness think they have the upper hand on the Son of Man, where they think they're about to defeat him, where they will see him at his lowest point, right? But obviously through the resurrection and now through the ascension, Jesus has been exalted above all authority, all powers. Also, the ascension approved his victory over the grave, the completion of our redemption and his continual work, as Gigi pointed out, in empowering the church through the Spirit. Now, I want to go there in a second, but I want, you, I, want, I want to read something that Wayne Grudem wrote, and this is what he said. He says, just as a human king sits on his royal throne at his, ascension, as it, at, at, at his accession to the kingship, but then engages in many other activities throughout each day. So Christ sat at the right hand of God as a dramatic evidence of the completion of, the, of his redemptive work and his reception of authority over the universe, but he is certainly engaged in other activities in heaven as well. One of the things that Jesus is doing in heaven, according to Hebrews, is that he is interceding for us. He stands, in other words, as our intercessor, right? Um, and I don't know that that means literally Jesus is sitting there uh, day and night. Well, there's no night in heaven, so he's sitting there every waking moment. Well, there's no time in heaven, so okay, you, you, you get what I mean. He's okay. He's in heaven. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That he's sitting there and he's reading off a list of names all day. Well, see, there you go again. It's almost impossible to talk about heavenly things without time and earthbound uh, categories. But uh, I think he stands as a Intercessor means like it's part of his office, it's part of his personnel. You had a I was question? Just curious if just his presence alone speaks of the fact that it is finished. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Just the presence. Just the presence of Christ in heaven? Yes. Okay. That, that that's his intercession, that it is accomplished, that it is, <clears throat> that it is a constant intercession. Like, that's right. Like I, and this is a very pitiful analogy, but just. <laughs> Like our wedding rings speak of, I have a covenant, I'm in a covenant. You know, and when we look at that, just the looking at it reminds us, I mean, that's a terrible analogy. No, no, it's but not. Just, just the looking at, just to lay eyes, not eyes, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. To see it, just, the, just his presence, mm -hmm. his intercession for Yeah, the that's right. Yeah, I mean, you see the king on his throne. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you immediately think of power, rule, authority. You know what I mean? And the fact that he is a prophet, priest, and king, right? right? Which is what we're going to study next is the, the threefold office of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, but just the fact that he is prophet, priest, and king knows that this king that's sitting, sitting on his throne is also our priest. And as our priest, he intercedes for us, 
right? So he doesn't even have like somebody wrote a book called So I Do Need a Priest, oh. <laughs> right? And we do. We, we need the high priest to intercede for us, you know. Um, that's right. But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 33, oh, I guess we can... You know, the context is the resurrection. I think I've pointed this out to you before, but in the book of Acts, the, the doctrine of the resurrection is the central doctrine of the book of Acts. There's no greater doctrine in the entire book of Acts than the resurrection. That is the pivot point of the early church. Because, and we might think, really, why? See, we have this Josh McDowell understanding of the Bible, most of us, evangelically, right? We think of resurrection, and immediately we think of, well, you know, the, you know, who moved the stone, you know, who rolled the stone away, and, and what is the evidence for the resurrection? And we have all of these evidential facts and all these apologetics things ready, right? But the, the apostles in the early church are thinking theologically. They're thinking theologically. They're not thinking apologetically, they're thinking uh, theologically, you know, almost, you know, grabbing a hold of each other and saying, do you know what this means? <laughs> right? The resurrection, do you know what this means? It is the fulfillment of all these biblical prophecies. Right? So verse 33, where are we at? Acts 2. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So, you know, the day of Pentecost, the disciples are empowered, they're in the streets, you know, speaking in tongues, and people are seeing this, and they're trying to interpret this great phenomenon, and they're saying, this is because the Father raised the Son, and he gave him the, the, the promise of the Spirit, that is to pour it out on his people, and that's what you're seeing. And this is, his, and this is the way he argues for... It was not David who ascended into heaven. Wow. See that? Right? This is coming right off the heels of the ascension now. Right? We didn't see David ascending to heaven. So this language that we're about to you know, cite to you must be referring of someone else. Right? He says, but he himself says, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, all the house of Israel know for certain that God has, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Incredible. I mean, think about that for the Jewish mind, right? You're a Jew. You've put your hope in David. You believe in the kingdom of David. You believe in the throne of David. You believe in the temple of David, right? You believe in the son of David, that one day he will come, the Messiah. And the disciples are saying that this is the one whom you have crucified, right? And it says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. So two different things there, right? Christ means what? Huh? Anointed. Anointed or Messiah, right? So it speaks of his messianic role, right? But he is also Lord, and if he is Lord, that speaks of what? His what? His kingship. Did somebody say that? Somebody squeaked that? Gigi, did you just squeak that out back there? I can't even believe I heard that. It was so low. <laughs> That's right, that he is also king, right? And he comes into his kingdom through the ascension, through the ascension. And that is all good and well. But what does the, re what is the ascension, what is the exaltation, what does the 
heavenly session of Christ have to do with our life in the 21st century? Right? As you're on your way to church this morning. Um, what does that have to do with it? Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Let's talk about the rapture. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Gotta wake you guys up somehow. Right? Let's get into the pre-tribulational debate. All right, everybody's ready for that. That's how you grow a big church, you know, you just preach the revelation. Talk about the Antichrist, fulfilled prophecy. Maybe I should do that. Blood moons. Talk about the blood moons. Yeah. <laughs> see what I mean? These guys are up on this. Uh, I see this as a simple application here. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So in other words, what is the ascension of Christ? What is the ascension of Christ a prelude to? A, what is it pointing to? It is pointing to our personal ascension. Isn't that remarkable? Or at least to the generation that will see this, the coming of Christ. They will themselves ascend into heaven with him and meet him in the air, in the clouds. Just amazing, right? I mean, cataclysmic. Yes. So when does that occur? That's not the topic. <laughs> I On the record. I personally believe it happens at the, at the second coming. But um, our incentive for living the Christian life is also tied together with the ascension. Look at, uh, go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Man, we can't get away from Hebrews. Does it just seem like that? I just realized something. You know, teaching the Bible is kind of like buying a new car. You don't see that car so much until you buy it, right? Then you see it everywhere, right? It's like you don't see Hebrews as much as when you're teaching it. Then it just pops up everywhere. That's what happens in 2 Corinthians. Same thing. Anyway, just a preacher side note there. Uh, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have, I mean, many of you know Hebrews 1, right? I mean, Hebrews 12, 1, right? Many of you guys know this verse. And how often have you connected it to the ascension? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with, uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us, the real practical stuff for the Christian life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same. And watch this. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is language uh, of, the, of the ascension, of the exaltation of Christ. What is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? It's not Psalm 23. It's not Psalm 1. One nineteen. One nineteen. Do I get a one hundred three? Is there one three out there? <laughs> one hundred four is going once, <laughs> going twice. Is it one nineteen? No. Psalm twenty one. No. Fifty one. No. You guys better not say like Psalm one eighty nine because there is no Psalm one eighty nine. <laughs> Watch out what numbers you're throwing out. No. Uh, the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament is Psalm one ten. Isn't that remarkable? 
<laughs> what? You're co- why you said one oh nine? John said it first. <laughs> what? You, did you say it? Lower than the angels, right? Yeah, Psalm one ten, verse one. It is the psalm of exaltation. Um, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We might think, why that psalm? You know what I mean? To us. We think there are so many wonderful psalms. You know, you're lo- the word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's all these psalms, right? Blessed is the man who does not, you know, we could, but no. The authors of the New Testament cite this verse. That he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? He says, he says until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is not a direct citation, but it is an allusion. They call this an allusion to that verse because it, this meant everything, folks. This, this enabled the Apostle Paul to put his head on a chopping block and have his head severed. Because if this verse is true, it means if, he, if we suffer with him, what did Paul say? We will reign with him. Amen. And that's the way he interpreted his whole life. Because he's reigning, he's entered into his heavenly session, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, then that means it doesn't matter what happens to me on this earth, I can go and sleep in a dungeon. And I've been to Israel, I was at Caesarea by the sea, down by where they kept Paul at one point in an underground dungeon by the, by the sea. And you could just see this little room where that, that was like the one he would have been in just sitting in this underground dungeon. And the underground dungeons were the worst because that's what everything, the sewage would trickle down, the rats would go down there, it would smell, it was just dark and cold and putrid. And our great Apostle Paul sat in a cell like that. Why? Because of this verse right here. Because he understood that all of his enemies will be a footstool for his feet one day. And because I suffer for him now, I will reign with him later, right? And the same thing applies to us. If we look at this verse here out of Hebrews, if we endure, if we run the race, right? If we consider this great cloud of witness, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, right? We do this with the recognition that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, right? So all of our trials can now be interpreted by this trial. I think it's my wife who's been med- meditating a lot on death, and she quoted something from Spurgeon. Correct me if I'm wrong, Trish, but Spurgeon said, who cares if I die like a dog? The crown is on his head. <laughs> right? So Spurgeon encouraged himself with the idea that Jesus has a crown on his head. In other words, he has been exalted. He's in his heavenly session. Who cares if I die like a dog? Right? It, it really does change everything. Any questions, statements, comments, encouragements, testimonies? Well, testify, it, it also makes a point of Psalm 56 being absolutely true that not only all of the sufferings are worth it in Christ, but that uh, I've, I've got my ESP today, so I'm, I apologize. It's okay. Uh, you, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Uh, are they not in your book? And, and, and to know that all of those those suffering passages and comforting passages 
that Christ has gone through all of those things, and yeah. now He has defeated all of that. And, and now you can just say, "I am, I am with you in that." That's right. And at the end of the day, yeah. this life has nothing, nothing left for us. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Amen to that. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Uh, this is where all of our assurance comes from right here, you know, is that we are united to him. And so again, we come back to the doctrine, right? That didn't work out too well. The doctrine of union with Christ, right? Union with Christ. Because we are united with him, because we are in Christ, because God thinks of us in connection to His Son, then where He goes, we go. It's because of union with Christ that Jesus can say, I go and prepare a place for you. I'll be back for you. Where I go, you will follow soon, after. And then we will be like Him when we see Him. All these all these passages, just like uh, Thessalonians here, that we will be caught up together with him in the air, in the clouds, and so we will forever be with the Lord, right? Because if Jesus is coming back, then we are coming back with him. If Jesus is going to heaven, then we are going to heaven with him. If Jesus is going to live on in all eternity, then we will live in all eternity with him. Yeah. That's why the whole Bible is Christ-centered, the whole Bible is a Christocentric book because it's trying to make you put your focus on the one to whom you are in union with, Christ. Uh, it's really remarkable. Okay, so not only is it practical in the sense that it helps us to endure, but it also helps us to uh, uh, wage warfare. Uh, so, for example, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, see that? Against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now all that language belonged to the language that we read about Jesus in the exaltation. That he was exalted above rulers, powers, darkness, right? Heavenly places, all that, all that language goes with the ascension, and so now that language is being attributed to spiritual warfare. So believers have the power now uh, because we partake, in a sense, we partake already with Christ's authority from heaven. We would have no ability to overcome demonic powers and those types of things if, based on our authority, right? But it's based on His authority. Know, this even gets into the theology of like demon possession and demon expulsion and things like that. You know, there are some people that don't believe in demon expulsion. I, I disagree with them. I definitely believe in demon expulsion. I don't believe that we're called to necessarily the ministry of demon expulsion. Going around, you know, like uh, what's that guy's name on television? I knew you would know Robert, Bob, Bob Larson or whatever. Yeah, yeah going around kicks people. No, he doesn't kick people, but I saw an episode once, this is many years ago when I would watch something like this, but, you know, uh, I saw an episode once with Bob Larson jumped off the stage and said, no one's casting a demon out except for me. <laughs> you got the VIP demon expulsion right here? What? It's got exclusive rights. Exclusive rights? To, I mean, 
Or the one, remember the Ray Comfort one, that the, the guy on the phone, Keeper? Uh, um, right, what was, it, that, was his, that his name? Um, on the phone, the demon-possessed man, and Bob Larson's on the phone, tell him, hold on, Keeper, you hold on, we gotta go to commercial, I'll be right back. Yes. You know, this guy's manifesting over the phone, his demonic voice, and he's casting him, casting the demon out over the phone. <laughs> and then he put, puts him on hold to go to commercial. <laughs> anyway. Be careful, okay? <laughs> Who you follow out there? That was years ago. He was still in Dallas. You remember that? Yeah, back in the oh, 80s. Oh, boy. You know, 111.56 or 226.12. Okay, so you're going deep. You're, you're going way beyond me, brother. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2. We've already looked at this, but we will... Not only share, we, we not only share in his triumph, his exaltation, his victory over demonic, the demonic realm, but we also will, we're also promised that we also share in his victory over creation. And remember the psalm that we looked at here in uh, Hebrews chapter 2? Remember, we talked about all this. Uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse 5, which is an exposition of Psalm 8. This is remarkable, right? For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So um, there's a subjection going on here, right? Uh, and it's based on the authority of chapter 1, which chapter 1 uh, several, several times quotes Psalm 110. The fact that he's been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, all those passages. Uh, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. That's all Psalm or Hebrews chapter 1. Now Hebrews chapter 2 is telling us that he is going to subject everything beneath someone's feet or uh, uh, the world. He's going to subject the whole world to someone. And he says, it's not to angels concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man? You're concerned about him. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, this is remarkable. Pause here and think with me here for a second. Who is this talking about? Verses 6 through 8. Who is that referring to? Who is, what is man that you remember him? Who is that man? Robert says Jesus, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Anybody else have a different opinion? Chris, what do you think? Well, I think it's a double meaning. Okay. Like David and Christ having that dual meaning like a lot of the Psalms do. That's good. Yeah, I I think... I mean, mean, because David is a type of Christ, so that would Certainly. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think in I think when he's talking about this in verses six through eight, that's what he's talking about, right? But then it also says in verse nine, you see that? No question. This is also in reference to Christ. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, which is exactly what verse seven says lower than the angels, which is just basically means you're in a position temporarily 
that's lower than the inhabit the inhabitant of the angels or the habitat of the angels. Right now, the angels, while man is on earth, while Jesus was on earth, the angels were in the presence of God in their heavenly, they were in a heavenly session, if you would. They were up there while Jesus was down here. And the same analogy is true for mankind, for especially for believers. We are down here now, right? We are lower than angels. We are, we are living in this world where it can be said of us, what is man that you, you're even mindful of him, that you even remember him, that you're even concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. So I think Chris is right that there is this, there is this double application here where it, it applies to man, but it applies to Jesus. Jesus is the way that this is going to be fulfilled, right? It says, you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You see that? God will give us dominion over the earth. He will give us dominion over creation. It says, do you not know that we will judge angels? We will have dominion as his people even over the angelic creation. Isn't that amazing? What's that going to look like? I don't know. Don't ask me because I have no answer for you. I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like to judge angels. Are we going to rule and reign over the angels in such a way that we'll, we'll be able to tell them what to do and where to go and how to minister and where to operate? And I don't know. I don't know. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Or As long as it's not some wild speculation, you can go ahead. <laughs> no, no, just a... Piggyback on what you're saying, which is Psalm 8, which is that direct quotation. Yes. Uh, it's, it's like if I were to read this, I mean, this is, I guess, of course, what we talk about when we're going through that book, um, Jesus and Every Page. It's like back then when you read this, would I have seen this and said, oh, this is Christ? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know if I would have because... You know, in Psalm 8, Maybe. when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all his sheep, so on and so forth. It's just very interesting. I don't know how good I would have been to identify that. Yeah. Whereas that... obviously... Uh, author Hebrews, I was about to say Paul, the author of Hebrews. <laughs> a lot of people would have agreed with you. <laughs> draws that connection and, and says, uh, this is speaking of Christ. But, yeah. you know, I mean, thank God that we do have um, yeah. the perfect commentators of the Old Testament, and that is the apostles and the Amen. writers of the New Testament to give yes. us that perfect yeah. commentary. It's so hard, right? Because just when you think, just when you ask yourself, how much did the Old Testament people really know? You know, I don't know that they would have seen this on first hand. Just when I want to conclude that, my studies have just led me in a direction sometimes where it's just like, I have to be careful to make a conclusion and say, I don't think they knew this was messianic. You know what I mean? Because it just seems like again and again, I'm proven wrong on that. <laughs> and it seems like they might have known a lot more than we think. You know, take First Peter chapter one as an example. They they search, make careful inquiries. You mentioned, you read the verse. It says, "Son of man." Mm -hmm. Son of man is is kind of a code for messianic language in the old covenant. Was it so Daniel that uses that. 
Definitely Daniel uses that. A lot of people use that in, in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? And so I, that's a rabbit trail, but it's just an interesting one. You know what I mean? That sometimes we think that the Old Testament, you know, prophets and people of God in the Old Testament knew. I think sometimes we think they knew less than they actually did. I think they probably knew more than we give them credit for. You know, amazing messianic connections that they make in the Old Testament. And it's, um, but that's good. And so I think that's right. Now, one last thing, okay? Go to Philippians chapter 2. Obviously, the classic, if, if, if you've been in here so far and you'd be like, what are we talking about? <laughs> if you've been in here thinking that, what in the world are we talking about? What we're saying is we come to a close in consideration to um, both... Well, the doctrine of Christology, and as we, we talked about his incarnation, and now we're at his exaltation. So incarnation, exaltation. And so what we're looking at really is what is known as the two states of Christ. The two states. And so the one state, dealing mainly with his humanity and his time on earth, is his time of humility. Right? His exaltation through which the ascension results of what resulting from the ascension is his state of exaltation that's what we've been looking at today the fact that he is exalted these are the two states of the person of Jesus Christ when he was born and came into this world he was he was in a state of humility amplified mostly by his suffering and then when he ascended into heaven through and was exalted then he enters his state of exaltation and there is not one passage in the New Testament that summarizes all of this best than Philippians chapter 2. It gives us the whole enchilada. So, <clears throat> Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5 is very interesting because you think that attitude is about to come. Right? Have this attitude... Uh, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you might think, okay, what's the attitude? He already explained the attitude in verses 1 through 4, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but what does it say? Prefer other people, regard others more important as yourself. That's kind of a summary of verses 1 to 3 in verse 4. Verse 5 is pointing back to that. Now, he also points forward, and he gives us an example of what the mind looks like. He says, Christ... Who also, or excuse me, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean other than when he came, he did not come to try to grasp at equality with God. He didn't come to try to prove that he was equal with God, right? And so sometimes Muslims and skeptics and atheists and people, they make the mistake of thinking, well, the, the gospels must be written so as to prove the deity of Christ, <laughs> right? And they're not. They're not written to prove the deity of Christ, right? Jesus didn't come for that purpose. He didn't come to grasp equality with God. He already had that. He already had equality with God. He, wasn't, he didn't humble himself to be equal with God. He was already equal with God. And so it goes on. He says, but he emptied himself, literally made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant. I think this ex that explains the, that. And being made in the likeness of men 
what, what is it, Romans 8, that says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh? That's, that's remarkable, meaning he identified with humanity. There in Romans 8, when it says flesh, it's referring to humanity, not with the human body, not with the sin nature, but with mankind, sinful mankind. And then it says, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And there, verse 8, I think it means something like mere man, right? He, was, he looked like a mere man, like he was nothing but man. But of course, we know he was more than just mere man. He was the God-man, right? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason... God highly exalted him. So there we go. We go from humiliation to exaltation. He exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, I want to stop at every interval and comment on this, but I can't. I'm totally out of time, so maybe we can pray and close, huh? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, um, thank you for setting before us in your Son the, the mysteries of divine revelation. Who are we that we should have a glimpse, that we should have a window into the depths of of your truth, of your mystery in Christ. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for what Jesus did for us. Thank you that he humbled himself like a man. He had all power. He had all authority. He had all dominion. He was already in a place of perfect glory and communion with his Father. And yet he came down here and humbled himself and went to a cross and died. And Father, we're so grateful that he's been exalted now, risen and exalted and that all of his enemies will be put under his feet, and that we, that we have a part in that is just amazing. We thank you, Lord. Bless our worship today. Continue to bless our We're worshiping now. But bless our worship moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.